Stigma-Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting Orban Foundation at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Donations help us continue to bring greater hope, understanding, resolution, and togetherness on issues of civilian readjustment for all military veterans and families. Please consider donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. As a thank you, you'll receive a free copy of the book Sold Out, Conquering the Experiences of War by Michael Orban. Receive your free copy by donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. Welcome to part two. Thanks for coming back. They don't call him. I know he doesn't have any money. They're not going to send anything. And they asked me to give some money, which I did a little bit. But but uh, the point is that that created a resolute uh, kind of a mission to, to deal with the disaster they'd been handed. And don't call anybody in Hanoi because they're not coming anyway. <laughs> Welcome to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members make the transition from the military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including such things as nightmares, rage, and isolation. Veterans and family members in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Thank you for choosing to make this journey with us. Here is today's segment. You mentioned the desire to see freedom celebrated as part of the reason for becoming involved in this really magnificent undertaking. Was there a personal desire of some kind? Let me phrase it this way. Did you feel personally a need to give back in some way to Vietnam or was that at work at all? Vietnam, I kind of treat that as, for me, it it came into my life and it never left, obviously, like it does for my fellow vets. But for my brother, Jack, it was something different. He was a police officer. For my brother, Ron, he he uh, worked with, you know, helping kids in our family, our parents being who we were, there was always some mission. My older sister was principal of a school in Chicago. She came from the farm, of course. And my younger sister is the head of the Department of Mental Health in Dubuque, Iowa. So, I mean, we've always had kind of a kind of a ingrown impulse to do what come, what seems like a natural thing to do and we enjoy it. And we get more out of it than we ever put into it. And I just kind of see Vietnam as just the logical place if, I, if, if there was something I could do. But I would add to that one additional point alluding to kind of the tone of your question. And that is that, that I always wanted to know the people in peacetime because I kind of liked the people to the extent I knew them. And sure enough, when I got over there, I did like them. And uh, I, I just culturally... I just found a lot of wisdom in that culture. And uh, one of the sayings that I picked up on that first trip back is, we can't change the past, we can change the future. And an ability to handle the past in a, in a responsible, peaceful way and use it as an insp- inspiration to propel them into the future is something they have a gift for. In fact, now with what's going on in our country, I kind of wish some people in our country 
could drink some of that Vietnamese wisdom about the past, how to handle the past, what to do with the past, and how to take an inspiration from it to go forward. And they, they, they've been an inspiration to me in that regard. Mm-hmm. The memory of your high school friend, chopper pilot, who died, and the troops, the Viet Cong that were walking across the river that were the target of your mortar attack years ago, do those memories, those painful memories, come up with some regularity as you are making these trips to and from Vietnam? You know, originally when I came back, occasionally I'd have a dream or something, and I I, I certainly didn't experience what other guys have experienced in Vietnam. But over time, that kind of receded into the the mists of time and then began thinking on going back to meet the people, back to that mission. And my buddy, you know, he was a chopper pilot, and I, now this gets off into something that maybe is too much conjecture, but but he was a really nice guy, and he had a great sense of humor, and we played football on the same team. We joked, we double-dated, all that stuff. And for him to be a chopper pilot, I think his, his, his love of flying did not match a natural antipathy he would have for pulling that trigger on a Cobra gunship. But he loved to fly. In fact, parenthetically, that's something I've noticed now going over to Vietnam. I've made 52 trips now. And in those trips, I've taken special forces guys over, army guys, intelligence guys and helicopter pilots. And there is a difference. The difference is that if you're an infantryman, depending on what kind of it, you got special forces infantry, they see the importance of knowing, understanding, and appreciating a culture when they move into a village. Then you have some infantry because of the nature of, of the battlefield. It isn't, this is nobody's personal fault. It's the nature of the war. They come in loaded for bear, so to speak. And then helicopter pilots, because they come in from a distance, their mission is to support us, which they did. I wouldn't be here if we didn't have the helicopter pilots. But their view of the war is different than if you have a ground view and you're talking to the people you're killing. Helicopter pilots have the risk they take, and they, Lord knows we lost over 5,000 choppers over there. They take that risk and they, they, they save our lives, but then they go back to the rear area. They don't sit down with the people. And that's where there's a difference. And now when we build these libraries, we had a 61st Assault Helicopter Company agree to build a library in Bong San. And these are great guys. The one guy later taught English for a baking institute in Manhattan, Kansas, Ken Embers. He was a captain. But they have a reunion every year and so on. But those guys, when I took them over to a meeting, I had to disarm them a little bit because they, the lady in the Communist Party that was asking me for more money than we had and, or that I had promised, they took that as a personal offense. And they, the one guy started getting kind of red in the face and he, a nice guy. I mean, they're all nice guys. But I could see that the rage that they expressed in that meeting was not something that was expressed by special forces guys or ground guys that had gone on other meetings. In fact, later on that, I met my wife that way. The one guy went back to Saigon. He talked to a Vietnamese who had been to the university in Kansas, and he complained about this event. The Vietnamese then got on the internet. The Communist Party picked it up on the internet, and I got a call from Hanoi about three days later. 
I had to fly back down and have these meetings. And that was the coldest meeting I ever went into because they felt they had been betrayed. They had built this beautiful building and everything. Now everything's fine. But in that moment, the helicopter pilot side of him came out, whereas I was kind of the ground side of it. And and so it, it, it's been an interesting dynamic, but understandable. And it's, in the end, you have to come back to understanding why people, what they do, do what they do or how they look at things, you know. And he's a great guy. I mean, he's, he's working with kids now, in fact, in Vietnam. Well, let me, this is kind of a two-pronged question here. One is, what have these trips meant in your life and this undertaking? And two, what have you seen, generally speaking, from the veterans that you've been associated with that have made this trip, and whether it has been uh, worthwhile to them and something that has become an important part of their life going forward? Can you talk about those two things? Sure. Well, for me, it's it's obviously, as you you mentioned, I, I had some sort of an impulse to go back, rooted in a family upbringing, but then nurtured in the Vietnam experience. And that was a logical place if I could do something to try to do something. So it's been really rewarding. I adopted a, well, adopted, I say sponsored a, a, a young girl, nine years old back then in Da Nang. And now send money every year and every and now she's a graduate of pharmacy school in Haiphong and she works at a hospital in Da Nang. See her every trip. And so in Ross Worley, our special forces guys, he paid for a heart surgery. What I we always had was kind of a personal component as well as the big library component. The idea of the personal component is that gives you somebody to talk to or somebody to build a relationship with. And so we've got a series of kids, and that's the most rewarding part of those. Those field cards, we go and we see the, the lives we changed. And then the, the bigger library aspect of it changes all these other lives. That's what that has been. Now, the other part of your question, I'm sorry. What was the impact this has had on the veterans who have chosen to participate? Ah, yeah, every single veteran, and I, I truly encourage people to go. We're in the twilight of our lives now. And whether it's with anybody, a trip back has been so profoundly rewarding to everybody that's talked to me afterward. And we do maintain contact, you know, now and then a year or two later. I won't say that I've suffered from PTSD or that this was some sort of an answer to a PTSD condition. But I have seen guys that do suffer from that and they get over there and kind of puts to rest a lot of the ghosts of the past for them. And they tell me that, you know, and going back to Vietnam is, is truly an important thing to do if you at all can do it physically and, and financially, of course. It's not cheap, but it's not that expensive either. And it's been rewarding that way because the guys get involved. We've got a lot of story. Every project produces a story. Every trip <laughs> produces a story. And they're all good stories, you mm -hmm. know, and it, people, every, everyone that's gone back has want to go back again. And many of them have some will in the future. Do the veterans that make these return trips, do they recognize Vietnam today? Uh, that's, <laughs> you know, there, there's no place we've been. We've been to the uh, helicopter pads up in Phuket near Bung San with a lot of those chopper pilots. There's the one airstrip there and that you can walk out on. They got a little monument there, but the chopper pad down below is not recognizable. 
and it yeah it's a, a war that is is time has passed you know it's it's not a lot unlike you know okinawa or saipan from world war ii now it's grown over but you can see the ancient remnants a little bit you know yeah they don't recognize it there's there is a couple places where vietnamese have placed a monument and their memory of the war, of course, is quite different than our memory of the war. Right. <laughs> but, uh, well, there, there's luxury hotels in Da Nang. And, uh... Oh, <laughs> the, the hotels and the casinos and oh my. all of that. Yeah, it, it, is, a, it is a different mm-hmm. place. But they generally find the people are the same, you know. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, how are the people of Vietnam? The people of Vietnam have a certain kind of an intestinal fortitude and a, a I don't know how to frame it, but they have a a way of handling disasters that is really unique. They come through so much. And if there's another monsoon and another flood, okay. In fact, when that flood I told you about was in in, in Duck Pole, I asked a really stupid question, which I'm known for anyway. (laughs) (laughs) I asked the guy, he says, well, did you call Hanoi? My translator translates it to the to the people's committee. They're all sitting in front of me. And I started laughing, you know. <laughs> and they said something back to Song, and Song translates in English. He says, Chuck, they don't call Hanoi. Hanoi doesn't have any money. They're not going to send anything. And they asked me to give some money, which I did a little bit. But, but uh, the point is that that created a resolute... Uh, kind of a mission to deal with the disaster they'd been handed and don't call anybody in Hanoi because they're not coming anyway. <laughs> I, I must say, I checked out your website and I believe there is a project going on and is it Thon Bin? Is that correct? Uh, through, with the VVAW? Oh, yeah, that's Ben Che. Okay. And there's a picture of on the website of, of the building and it, I can't really do justice to this in an audio only interview, but I can tell you that it's a very handsome building. This is not, uh, the library is not a, a small unit, two stories and painted a beautiful white color with a balcony uh, wrapping around. And I don't know, I would guess somewhere in the neighborhood of two or 3,000 square feet. It's, it's a fine structure. Do they all look this good? Yeah, some more, some less. There's one mm-hmm. now we have in Laos, and that was built with the Hmong and the Kamu people in the mountains of Laos. And I just got an email yesterday, and I'm, I sent a response to the ambassador today. That library is a picture of the one that you looked at, and with all those paintings on it, all those, you know, decoration and all of that. And the Lao army came in and seized that library after we had finished it. And we had 30, over 30 people fly from the U.S. over for the dedication. This was December 18, 2018. And we have been working with them to get that library back. And there are allegations that they call it the Patikan Project, which means the enemy project. And this is kind of the political fallout of a Chinese railroad called the Silk Road. And they're building that all the way from Beijing all the way down to, well, well beyond it, to, to Bangkok and so on. But it's going by this village library. The Chinese are not happy with it. But that's one that we had the library and we've got it built and we can't get people into it. It's the only one we've ever had that that has happened. But they all look the same. In fact, you know, the, the thing that wraps around there, the ramp. On the first library, I had taken a Vietnamese architect from Washington, D.C. over with me, and he was about 27, 28. And I drew on a napkin a a little idea. What I wanted was a library that had 
some sort of an architectural signature to it. Well, that meant from pillars, that meant a gabled roof, it meant a book or a light or some sort of something like that. Well, he drafted that, and he the first library is looks like that, and then there's been small adjustments made as we went on. But that ramp was a requirement I put in there for handicapped accessibility, and they didn't have any handicapped access laws in Vietnam or Quang Nai at that point, 1999. Now they've got lots of them. The People's Committee told me later that people would drive by and they'd see that ramp going up, and they they would ask, what is that all about? What are you building? And I, I told them, I said, well, I want to be able to come and w- walk up this ramp when I'm an old man or somebody can wheel me up there in a wheelchair on the second floor. And so that's along with bringing the library, we tried to bring little social innovation. And the other thing was in the beginning, and we wanted to teach English language. Well, that, that was a non-starter with the, the, the Ministry of Culture in Quang Nai at that time. But as time, every year I'd go back and every year I'd ask, and I'd bring an English language book and they'd, they'd politely decline it. Then finally, I come back one time and everything was okay because they had passed a decree in Hanoi, decree 92 or something, I guess it was, calling for English to be the second, the official second language of Vietnam. And it is now. <laughs> wow. But we had to keep talking to them and talking to them. And that took about three or four years. And now, now they're doing that at all the library. How much longer do you think you'll do this? Depends how long God keeps me around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, it, you know, it, it's not work for me, you know, so I, I can't say I'm breaking a sweat. I, I enjoy it. You know, it's, Chuck, if there is anything that I did not ask, or for that matter, that we did talk about, and you'd like to go back and emphasize again, please feel free to do so. Well, you really uh, are a professional, as, as I mentioned in my email. Well, you've really covered the ba- basis of key points of our efforts. The, the other thing is, for anybody listening to this, I really would encourage you to look into the returning to Vietnam. Amid all else that's happening, there, there still is some need there, and uh, it's kind of overlooked for understandable reasons with all the other things going on in the world today. But this is the war of our generation, you know, and so if, if there's some place you can do something, it's as good a place as any. In fact, one final story, we've got a guy from who also served at Duck Poe. He was an intelligence officer from Columbia, Missouri. He's gone back five years in a row now. And we had a, a family that was killed by an unexploded bomb in June 2015. And I sent this out and he saw it. So he came over there and he gave him $500. And the lady, we asked the lady, what are you going to do with the $500? She says, well, with this money, I can start an orange grove. If I get the orange grove going, then I'll have something every year for this. And this is right at the DMZ. So we went back year number one, he took her $500. 2015, 16, 17, 18, 19. And last year we got there. She said it would take three years to get an orange. Uh-huh. <laughs> so every year we went back and every year we went and visited her and we got pictures from every year. Last year we get back, family came with me and she showed up with this big plate of oranges. <laughs> oh my. So we call it, uh, we call it Terry's Vineyard. Terry for his part has a, a land, a greenhouse in Columbia, Missouri, but he always stuck with it and sticking with it is also part of the Vietnamese way and the American way and doing something. So. 
It's the kind of thing that started out small and grew into something. (laughs) We've been visiting with Chuck Teusch, who served with the Army in 1969 and 70 as part of the 11th Infantry Brigade of the AmeriCal Division. Chuck is the founder and CEO of the Library of Vietnam Project. Chuck, you just have such a wonderfully remarkable story to tell. Thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you, and thank all the guys out there for families and friends, too. And we do have a lot of families and friends that give a, cover our backs, too, now as we get older. <laughs> so take care. Thank you. I would also like to thank our recording engineer, Kate Ostrakon, and our listeners to the Stigma Free Vet Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Your feedback is always welcomed and encouraged. You'll find contact information on our webpage, OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Our program is produced by Blueberry Pro Productions. On behalf of Michael Orban, this is Bob Bach. Thanks for joining us, and please tune in again.